Hi, you're listening to Go Dutch, eh? A podcast from the Embassy of the Kingdom of the Netherlands to Canada. Our countries have a special relationship built from common values and a history that is unlike any other. This series features extraordinary Dutch and Canadians who give their views on how our two countries can use this shared purpose to build a better world together. Hello, my name is Ines Kopolse and I'm the ambassador of the Kingdom of the Netherlands to Canada. We have started the second series of our podcasts in which we will be focusing on diversity and inclusion. This is the first episode of this new series focusing on anti-discrimination and anti-Semitism with two very knowledgeable and inspiring guest speakers. Our first guest is a well-known retired Canadian politician, the Honourable Erwin Cutler. Erwin is a professor emeritus of law, founder and chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Centre for Human Rights, and he was a member of parliament for 16 years, Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada in the first decade of this century. In November last year, Prime Minister Trudeau nominated him Canada's Special Envoy on Preserving Holocaust Remembrance and Combating Antisemitism. Our other guest is from the Netherlands, Professor Dr. Emile Schrijver. He is the director of the Jewish Historical Museum and the Jewish Cultural Quarter in Amsterdam, an organization comprising five museums and institutions in the Dutch capital. Emile is also professor of Jewish book history at the University of Amsterdam and serves on boards and advisory committees of numerous Jewish cultural organizations in and outside of the Netherlands. Both our guests are experts in their fields and passionate speakers about diversity and inclusion and the dangers of exclusion and discrimination. But before we will listen to the interview with our two guests, I would like to invite you to listen to an excerpt of a deeply moving song of the Holocaust entitled Stiller Stiller, meaning quiet, quiet, performed in Yiddish and English by Flora Love Katz and her Ottawa Klezmer band. The lyrics were written by Schmerke Kaczerginski and the music was composed by 11-year-old Alexander Wolkowiski while he was a prisoner in the Vilna Ghetto in Poland. It is a lullaby to the graves. It is remarkable for any 11-year-old child to compose a piece of such beauty and caliber. Reflecting on the conditions under which this child composed it, it is even more harrowing and breathtaking. Still, my child, don't cry, my daughter. Tears no help commands. A warm welcome, Professor Kotler and Professor Schrijver. 
It really is an honor and a pleasure being able to have this important and timely conversation with you today. I'd like to start off with a few questions to begin with a question for both of you. Um, what makes this moment in time so crucial for your work? When I read the newspapers, it seems that anti-Semitism uh, is not something of an ugly past, but still very much with us. Uh, but is that still the same anti-Semitism from the same sort of resentments that we have known for centuries? Or are we seeing a different sort of anti-Semitism from different groups? Professor Kotler, would you like to have a go first? Okay, I, we, we are witnessing and have been witnessing for some time an old, new, uh, global, escalating, sophisticated, virulent, and even lethal anti-Semitism that is grounded in classical anti-Semitism, but distinguishable from it, that first found its international uh, juridical uh, expression in the United Nations Zionism as Racism Resolution, but it's gone dramatically beyond that. Uh, an old new anti-Semitism, which almost needs a new vocabulary uh, to define it, but which can best be uh, described or understood using a human rights lens or an equality rights lens in particular. In a word, traditional or classical anti-Semitism is a discrimination against, denial of, assault upon the rights of Jews to live as equal members in whatever society they inhabit. And we've been seeing an increasing assault, whether uh, we look at the uh, data respecting uh, the US, Europe, and elsewhere, uh, an increasing assault in, a, in classical anti-Semitism term, targeting Jews in synagogues, streets, on campuses, in the international arena. But we are witnessing also a new anti-Semitism, that is the discrimination against denial of, assault upon the rights of uh, the Jewish people in Israel to live as an equal member of the family of nations. Indeed, the right at times even uh, to live. And the emergence of Israel as the targeted uh, collective Jew among the nations. And in a series of one-liners, and with this I'll conclude, some four manifestations of this new anti-Semitism include, number one, uh, genocidal anti-Semitism, the toxic convergence of the advocacy of the most horrific of hatreds, namely genocide, uh, grounded in the most horrific of hatreds, namely anti-Semitism, and finding expression uh, in the targeting of Israel and the Jewish people uh, for genocide for which Khamenei's uh, Iran is metaphor and message. The second is demonological uh, anti-Semitism, where Israel and the Jewish people are held out to be the embodiment of all evil in the world today. In the word, the enemy of all that is good, and the embodiment of all that is evil, and the ascription to them of all the evils of the 20th and 21st century, namely colonialism, imperialism, ethnic cleansing, uh, child killing, apartheid, Nazism. Uh, the third is uh, what might be called political anti-Semitism. That is the denial of Israel's right to exist or the denial of its legitimacy, the denial of the Jewish people's right to self-determination or the denial even that there is a, a Jewish people. And finally, and with this I close, there's what might be called, and this is the most sophisticated part, the laundering of anti-Semitism under the protective cover of universal uh, human values, under the protective cover of the United Nations, the authority of international law, the culture of human rights, and increasingly under the very struggle against 
racism itself, uh, where Israel and Jews are held out uh, to be part of the oppressor or even white oppressor group, and therefore don't even have standing to enter the debate. Thank you, Professor Kotler. Uh, Professor Schrijver, do you concur with these views? I mean, four very serious points that have been brought forward. Is there a fifth one or is there something else that you would like to add? Well, one, one of the most horrific uh, answers that you can get from a scholar is a yes and no answer. But I think um, I have a yes and no answer to this, which, uh, yes, I do agree. But what I find particularly interesting in terms of Professor Kotler's definitions is what I would probably call uh, the conflation of Israel and, and the Jews. Um, the, the, because I think there, especially the situation in Europe is such that there is also a non-conflated uh, traditional European antisemitism at work, which has always been there, but which is becoming more visible in the present political in the present political climate, but I would I would say that one of the things that strikes me is is to what extent traditional prejudices, let's say pre nineteen forty eight prejudices concerning Jews, have are also dominating the uh, the 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 debate. So I think that that uh, interpreting every expression of anti-Semitism as something that is connected to Israel directly is something that I would probably not agree with. Uh, on the other hand, uh, and, 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 and giving a separate status to the visibility and the uh, salonfähigkeit, if I were to use a German word, the, the salonfähigkeit of the, 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 so the public acceptance and the acceptance in intellectual circles as well of a certain level of traditional demonizing anti-Semitism, that is something that strikes me in particular in the last five to ten years in the public debate in Europe. Right, so, so you, you do agree that the anti-Semitism has, has evolved uh, in, in, in the last uh, decades, that's, that's no, for no sure. No doubt whatsoever. Right, and um, well, the, the overarching theme of, of our podcast series is diversity and inclusion. Um, could you tell our listeners how Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism fits into this theme of diversity inclusion? So, what is the link, for instance, with, with other trends that we see, like growing Islamophobia and anti-Asia sentiments, um, white supremacy and, and uh, Black Lives Matter movements? Um, Professor Schrijver, would you, would you like to share your view on this? Well, we, we, thank you. We have, we have, uh, in, in our museum, we're dealing with, with this topic from a, from a variety of angles. And in the development of our National Holocaust Museum in, Amst in Amsterdam, uh, the very coming into existence of a National Holocaust Museum in the Netherlands, one human life after the end of the Second World War is a statement in itself. Um, and has everything to do with our answer to the question, why would you want a Holocaust museum 76 years after the end of the war? And the answer to that is because the, the overarching themes, as you call them, of, the, uh, of, of today's 
debate on equality, on diversity and inclusion has so much to learn from uh, from uh, from the from from the events of the Holocaust. There's so much to learn about the importance of inequality and the about the importance of understanding inequality and understanding the societal processes that underlie at the end. And there I conquer with 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 Professor Kotler again the genocidal aspect and the genocidal final solution of 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 such trends. Um, that. It, it is all the more vital that we keep that memory alive. It's all the more vital that we teach about that memory, and it's all the more vital that we uh, that we help our audiences, whatever they may be. They may be academic audiences. They may be the, the maybe the public. They may be maybe the press. They may be anything. The media, whatever. Uh, that we that we educate our audience in in understanding the complexity. Of such genocidal processes, and in also in understanding the, the 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 slow process that is necessary to get there, and there's for me there is the 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 importance for today's discussion, and we in a, in the we, we of course I mean you cannot in my in my perspective it is it is impossible to run a Holocaust museum especially in a country like the Netherlands, where we like to pride ourselves on our fantastic role during the Second World War and all the resistance. But it's actually the country in Europe in which, in Western Europe, that has the highest percentage of Jews killed. In a country like that, uh, I, th I think it's, 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 of the, it's of the utmost importance that we answer that question time and again, keep the memory alive, teach people about what has happened, teach people about this, the gradual process and... and uh, and talk about all the uh, talk about similar events. So we, we we issued a statement in which we in which we in which we uh, mentioned how important this whole Black Lives Matter movement is. But we also have a small uh, exhibition opening as soon as our museums will reopen, which we called Art Jews White, which deals with the with the complex position of Jews in this ex intersectionality debate in the. Uh, the 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 uh, extent to which there a variety of minorities identify with each other's problems, and the Jews have a very complicated role in that. I mean, the, the, the there are many Black Lives Matter demonstrations where Jewish parties wanted to be part of the demonstration and were pushed out because they were using the Star of David in the logo. I mean, this is very very complicated, and that gets us back to Professor Kotler's initial remark. On, on this 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 isolated status, so to speak, of the Jewish aspect of inequality, of the racism, anti-Semitism, and anti-Semitism, this debate—it's never the same as any of the others, because it's always blurred by the complexity of of historical fact and historical lie. Right. So it's it's never the same, but it all comes down to uh, the right of every individual to live, to exist, irrespective of your color, your religion, what you wear, who you want to be, uh, etc. We will come back to the to to the role of education uh, later on, but but right now I would like to uh, to move on to Professor Kotler. Uh, because we know you have been promoting uh, human rights, uh, equality, diversity and inclusion throughout your, your impressive career. And we know how hard you have worked to, to make a difference. 
Um, I would like to know what, what steps that, that you have taken in, in your various you know, political, government and academic positions that you've had. Which steps have you taken that you are particularly proud of that, that worked well? Could you, could you say something about that? Well, I think the, the first I would point to um, was my involvement as a member of the uh, Canadian Declaration to the uh, Stockholm Conference on Conscience and Humanity. There were four of them. The first one, the Stockholm Conference on the Holocaust in the year 2000, which led to the establishment of IRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and where we went down the path uh, thereafter to what eventually became uh, the IRA working definition uh, on anti-Semitism, as well as uh, more recently the IRA uh, handbook to combat Holocaust denial and distortion. So that's the first, and I had the privilege of working then with uh, the then Prime Minister of Sweden, Joran uh, Persson, who's actually uh, honorary co-chair of our Rao Albert Center for Human Rights with uh, the late pair Almark of blessed memory, a former deputy prime minister of Sweden, Elie Wiesel, Nobel Peace Lawyer. So all this took us down the road to where we are now with the IRA definition. Uh, the second, I think, I had to do when I was a minister of justice between 2003, 2006, I'll mention just one thing, uh, where I launched the first ever national justice initiative against racism and hate. And it was, in, in, in fact, uh, prompted by an assault uh, a bombing of a Jewish day school in Montreal, and at the same time, the bombing of a mosque in Ontario. And thereby, uh, we brought together both the Jews and the Muslims to what became the launch of a national justice initiative against racism and hate, and education was a primary uh, component of it. The third thing uh, was when in the 2008, together with uh, now Lord John Mann, he then was a member of parliament in the UK, uh, we launched the Interparliamentary Coalition to Combat Anti-Semitism, the first of its kind, had interparliamentary conferences both in London in 2009, Ottawa in 2010, each of which issued a both a London declaration and an Ottawa parliamentary protocol to combat anti-Semitism. And this engaged parliamentarians in the combating of anti-Semitism and presaged also the adoption of the IRA definition uh, in 2000. Uh, 16. And then finally, uh, the Canadian Parliament in 2015, uh, after we had a first ever UN General Assembly meeting on anti-Semitism, we were asked to go back to our own respective parliaments, have a discussion and debate on it. Uh, we had it in the Canadian Parliament, which adopted a unanimous resolution, as they say about Canada, Canada colon, one wag, one foot, uh, cancelled for lack of interest. So nobody knows about this resolution, but in the very important principle and precedent. I will conclude uh, with this. The resolution had three parts, as I said, adopted unanimously, uh, February 2015. Part one was alarmed at the global escalation in anti-Semitism, and regrettably it has gotten worse since. Second, calls on the Canadian government to make the combating of anti-Semitism a priority in both our domestic and foreign uh, policy. And then the third part, which relates also to the IRA definition adopted the subsequent year, it said, uh, criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitic and saying so is wrong. But singling Israel out for selective opprobrium and indictment, denying Israel's right to exist, let alone calling for its destruction, is hateful, discriminatory and anti-Semitic, and not saying so is dishonest. 
that was a kind of framing from a parliamentary uh, perspective of the whole issues that then led the following year to the adoption of the IRA working definition on anti-Semitism. Thank you. Yes, and we all know, of course, how legal definitions can be of the utmost relevance. If I understand you correctly, you have laid a good foundation for the next generation, the next Erwin Cutlers to build upon, and I hope that uh, that will be done uh, as well. Um, you mentioned international collaboration. I would like to come back to that uh, in my last question. Um, but for now, uh, Professor Kotler, you also mentioned the importance of education. And I know that that is something that Professor Schrijver is very keen on. Uh, Professor Schrijver, a few weeks ago, when, um, when we had a discussion, you, you underlined the need to, uh, to focus on prevention and, and education first and foremost. So my question to you is, how can we involve teachers, parents, uh, societal organizations, and new generations in particular, for whom the Holocaust, you know, is something of a dark past, uh, it's, it's ancient history, and that doesn't really concern them. So how can we involve them? Can you elaborate a bit on that, Professor Schrijver? I think, thank you. I, th I think there are a few things of, of real big interest. I mean, the, the, the Dutch Ministry of Welfare conducted research a few years ago uh, in which it was found that the interest, the public interest in uh, the Holocaust is increasing, whereas the knowledge is decreasing, which is a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, so there's bigger interest in the topic than there's ever been. And on the other hand, there's, there's, an, there's an, a lack of knowledge. The problem is that this is true not only of the uh, pupils in school, of students in schools, in high schools more than anything else, or even in universities, the students in our universities, but uh, it's also true to teachers. And the so if you want to, and there and there's a, and there's a second problem involved in teaching the Holocaust, which is the fact that many. Uh, my my curator for for the for for the National Holocaust Museum once compared the Holocaust to a cactus. Whatever, and she's a member of IRA. Whatever way you try to hold it, you will get stung in one one way or the other. It will hurt you. It's a very very difficult topic, which leads to the to the just the, the fact of life in many schools that teachers shy away from the topic. They don't know how to teach it. And uh, for lack of their own knowledge, for, for lack of educational approaches to the topic. And what we have to do is that we have to strengthen the, 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 the self-confidence and the knowledge, increase the knowledge of our teachers, but we should also think the other way around. We can bring the schools into institutions like ours, like the Holocaust Museum, but also like the Jewish Historical Museum. It's not only about understanding antisemitism, it's also about understanding Jews about understanding Jewish life. So we have developed a program which we called a talk show in the classroom. And it's like a television talk show in which we bring two museum docents into a classroom in schools, for example, in certain parts of Amsterdam where the larger population of a school will be either Muslim or have some kind of other uh, non-originally Dutch background, let's put it whatever way you want to phrase that. Uh, and we start a discussion on identity. And it starts out with all the 
difficult issues that Professor Kotler also indicated of Israel as a perpetrator, as the, the, the of of the, how how can the Jews uh, be the victim of the Shoah on the one on the one hand and and be a perpetrator in Gaza on the other. Uh, isn't it about time that we stop complaining about the Jews as the victims? There are more contemporary victims than the Jews, as if there was not contemporary anti-Semitism. But interestingly, these docents are trained to get the students to also talk about their own identities, about their own feelings of of being separate, separated within a society. And the better docents bring these bring these positions together. And the class visits the museum afterwards. It's a very successful program. It 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 puts an enormous demand on the on the museum docents, but I think this is the only way that we we can do it. So we have to be outspoken. We have to be clear. And one of my favorite lines is: I agree with Professor Kotler. We don't, and not every not every criticism on Israel is anti-Semitism. Not every. Uh, Indic, not every expression of one person being different from another is racist. But the biggest danger, especially in our society in the Netherlands, uh, is that when there is anti-Semitism, that we shy away from calling it anti-Semitism. If there is anti-Semitism, call it anti-Semitism. If something is racist, call it racist. If something is Islamophobic, call it Islamophobic. If it's sexist, which is big, as big a problem as the others, call it sexist. And the and I think that is essential, and that there's a role for the likes of of and I'm not comparing myself, but the likes of Professor Kotler and myself, professionals working in this field, to uh, to to take responsibility and bring this information to the and bring the bring the reliable information in an age of irreliability in the public realm. In bring this information to the audience in a reliable fashion, teach them and call the things by their proper name. Thank you very much. And yes, it is, It is, of course, a very, very sensitive issue. It's a very complex issue. It's, it's very multi-layered, but nevertheless, don't shy away from having that conversation in the classrooms uh, with people from whatever, whatever background, that, that is your point. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to conclude with a question for the both of you. Um, you know, and I told you that the Netherlands and Canada both commit themselves to strive for equal rights, equal opportunities, uh, in inclusive societies. Do you think that this sort of proactive international cooperation is important? And uh, assuming that your answer will be yes, Could you explain why? Why is it so important that countries like the Netherlands and Canada work together on, on this specific issue? Professor Kotler, would you like to have a go first? Well, I, I think that, you know, uh, Canada and the, and the Netherlands, you know, share a, uh, a friendship and a commonality that goes back, of course, to the uh, Second World War. But both are uh, democracies, both are committed uh, to human rights, Uh, the rule of law, uh, the protection uh, of a free press as a an important crucible of uh, democracy. And I think it's important because uh, we are witnessing today what I would call a global uh, political pandemic. 
We don't only have a COVID-19 pandemic, we have a global, a global political pandemic that's characterized by a resurgent global authoritarianism. On the one hand, the backsliding of democracies, the ongoing assault on, on human rights, including, as I said, assault on free media and increasing number of uh, political prisoners uh, as a looking glass uh, into this uh, resurgent global authoritarianism and, and global political pandemic, whether it be the Nasreen Soutadez and the iconic woman human rights lawyer in Iran or Raif Badawi in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I can go on. I think, therefore, it's important uh, that the community of democracies uh, come together and uh, counter the backsliding or retreat of democracies and work effectively to combat the resurgent uh, global authoritarianism. Uh, I can use just one example. Uh, CISI, the Communist Party of, of China, regrettably, has emerged as a leading threat to the international uh, rules-based uh, order, uh, whether it be the mass atrocities uh, targeting uh, the Uyghurs or the assault on not only the democracy movement, but democracy itself in, in Hong Kong, or the targeting of the uh, Falun Gong, the Tibetans, Taiwan, all part of what have been called the five poisons to be targeted, or the fact that China has emerged and it's not as well known as it deserves to be as the leading uh, jailer of journalists in the world today. But the point is that China has been succeeding in this asymmetrical uh, relationship between the certain global authoritarianism and the backslide democracies by targeting the democracies one by one. Australia, uh, Japan, uh, Canada. Therefore, it's important uh, to reset that asymmetrical relationship. That is why we founded an interparliamentary alliance on China. And now I'm hopeful under the uh, U.S. administration that there will be a summit on democracy and we'll have an intergovernmental alliance on uh, China. But the Netherlands and Canada are two countries whose uh, motives uh, would not be suspect in their advancement of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. That is why when the two countries recently came together with respect to an initiative uh, before the International Court of Justice uh, regarding the mass atrocities that have occurred in, in Syria, I think that this was welcomed by the international uh, community precisely because these are two democratic actors that enjoy uh, respect. And I think that can serve as a model uh, for not only Canada and the Netherlands coming together with regard uh, to Syria, but where we can do the same thing with regard to uh, uh, Venezuela uh, and other dimensions. We really can uh, provide, as I say, role models for how democracies can advance uh, human rights, uh, the rule of law, diversity, inclusion, and at the same time, combat this uh, resurgent global authoritarianism. Thank you very much, Professor Kotler. Professor Schrijver, what about you? International cooperation, good idea? We'll try to top Professor Kotler. The, the, uh, it's, uh, now, I, what I would like to concentrate, of course it is a good idea, and what I would like to concentrate on is if, if uh, I would say that Professor Kotler just indicated, let's say, the macro aspect of, of the importance. What I, what I would like to underline is the micro aspect of such cooperation. One of the things that strikes me on, on many of my travels dealing with this topic, speaking about the topic, 
uh, in the US, in Canada, and in other places in the world, is the different approaches to that very same problem. There's no such thing as a, as a common approach to the issues of diversity, inclusion, inequality, and everything. There is on the political level, but not on the personal level. I think it's not a coincidence that the political sensitivity to such topics as the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, uh, is something that in the Netherlands we are gradually learning. We, this is something that's being being handed over, so to speak, from the American situation to the Dutch situation, the North American situation to the Dutch situation. And the the uh, oftentimes you would still hear, okay, but this is a problem of the U.S. and this is an important debate, imported debate. This is a debate that is not ours. And we were involved in in slavery, like like almost and like none of the other countries in the world. So, um, the the I think there's a lot to learn from also from the one on one contact between people from the institutional context, let's say slightly below the governmental level, just of, of institutions who, who see it as their role to play uh, or to, to make it make a difference in our societies, to be in touch with each other, because we have a different set of communication skills, we have a slightly different set of problems, but the final goal in the end is the same, which is that we understand such processes and try to change our, our societies and, and underlining the, the, the importance of, of cooperation between Canada and the Netherlands. Yes, these are two countries that are closely connected and these are two countries that take a similar approach to their role in the, in the international world. So please continue. That's a question to you. Ambassador, to uh, continue to uh, to foster these uh, these cooperations, I couldn't agree more. Thank you very much, and and of course, uh, not just Canada and the Netherlands, but we are two countries that have equality for all based in their constitution. So I mean, you know, it's it's a no brainer in the end to to continue this this work. Uh, Professor Kotler, Professor Schreifer, thank you so much for being uh, with us today and for sharing your thoughts on diversity uh, and inclusion. And I hope that by this podcast, we have not only uh, reached out to listeners, but also to the two of you in order to connect and continue your work on this very important uh, subject. Again, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Well, thank you. That that will be a real benefit. I hope to be contacting Professor Schreiber after this uh, so that we can uh, work cooperatively together on the issues uh, we discussed, uh, whether it be a, a respective national action plan to combat anti-Semitism or education. And I'm very intrigued by the approach that he has been uh, taking. I think the focal point, not only in terms of Holocaust remembrance, but on Jewish life uh, before the Holocaust and that is a way to counter some of the indifference uh, to what has uh, been going. I, I, I just want to mention one point that as you were speaking, Professor, I was, I was very struck by the fact that as you put it, the paradox, you know, an increasing interest in matters relating to the Holocaust. And yet, as the recent study showed, some 50% of millennials can't name uh, one concentration camp or even the death camp uh, Auschwitz. And, and they are increasingly exposed to the hate on the internet with its own manifestations of Holocaust denial and distortion. So I look forward to working together with you on, on these issues. Uh, yet another 
example on a personal level of, of Canada and Netherlands cooperation. And with you, Ambassador, I want to commend you for taking uh, this initiative and showing once again how the Netherlands is a model for all the issues we have been discussing today. The world is a complex place where power shifts and the COVID-19 pandemic caused not only change, but also fear in many of our societies and in many people's lives. In a speech that inspired generations, Martin Luther King said in 1962, and I quote, I am convinced that men hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they don't communicate with each other. And they don't communicate with each other because they are separated from each other. End of quote. It is up to us as the next generations to make sure that fear of the unknown doesn't lead to fear of each other. By embracing diversity and inclusion, by teaching next generations how important the respect of fundamental rights and freedoms is, and by holding perpetrators of human rights abuses and atrocities to account, we can make future that is brighter for all of us. The Netherlands and Canada will be working closely together and side by side in international fora to promote democracy, human rights and the rule of law. We will stand up for diversity and inclusion and work hard to prevent and counter discrimination and racism in any form so that nobody will be left behind. With this, I would like to introduce a piece of music of the young Dutch-Jewish composer Dick Kattenburg that radiates hope. Dick Kattenburg wrote this piece for flute and piano in 1939, 20 years old. He composed all through the Second World War while in hiding in the Netherlands and died in Auschwitz in 1944, only 24 years old. His music is preserved by the Leo Smit Foundation in the Netherlands, and you will be hearing Mrs. Eleanor Pameyer, the founder of the organization, on the flute, and Mr. Marcel Worms on the piano, performing this delightful piece. Thanks for listening to Go Dutch, eh? A podcast presented by the Embassy of the Kingdom of the Netherlands to Canada. Please visit our website at netherlandsandyou.nl slash Canada for more information. And follow us on Twitter at NL in Canada.